Within the next year, continuous vetting will no longer apply only to federal employees in national security. More of you in certain positions involving public trust will also be subject to background checks, and you'll never know when. The goal is to enroll all feds in high and moderate risk positions into the government's continuous vetting program by the end of fiscal 2024. Here with more details, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Let's begin, Drew, with continuous vetting. That's the government's word for they can look at any publicly available data that could indicate some change in your life that could make you at risk. Is that a good way to describe it? That is a good way to describe it, Tom. It subjects certain federal employees to background checks at any given time, so Rather than the alternative, which is commonly called reinvestigations, these occur every five years for many non-national security positions in government, the continuous vetting system, instead of having kind of these regular and more spread out background checks, the continuous vetting program will apply for employees who can be subject to them at any given time. During the process, agencies conduct record checks. These, this is an automated process. They look at things like, as you said, credit history, criminal records, other information like that. And then they flag any instances where an employee might have an issue that could put their employment at risk. So this can, for example, be an arrest. That's generally how the process works. Sure. We should let people know they don't look into private records that are protected, but these are publicly available data sources. That is to say, if you're arrested on, say, a gun charge or a drug charge, that's a matter of public record. And so they scrape these databases that have all of this information. Also, you know, the TransUnions and Experians, their data is publicly available. And if you have some severe financial hit and suddenly you're in debt, the government could discover that and that's considered a security risk. And we know it applies to people getting security clearance in the formal sense. Who else would this impact as it spreads? So this will generally start to impact a larger subset of the federal workforce, not just for national security positions, not just for those with security clearances, but it's applying now to or will be soon applying to uh, those who are in what are called non-sensitive public trust positions. Kind of a general term here, but what this means is these are employees who are in what is considered high or moderate risk levels in their positions. So things like policymaking roles, public safety and health roles, law enforcement officers, those who have uh, certain fiduciary responsibilities, or what OPM says is other duties that demand a significant degree of public trust. So all all federal employees in those positions. The goal by the end of the, this fiscal year is to, to get them into this continuing vetting program. Now, will OPM have a specific list of jobs or functions, or do they leave that to the discretion of the agencies? Because, frankly, if you wait for OPM to come up with a list, it could be five years. So the ones that I just mentioned, these are the general categories that OPM considers to be in those uh, public trust roles. But, of course, it will be up to the agency to kind of put together their list of who specifically is going to take on the continuous vetting program. Now, agencies must have to do something now. What is OPM telling them to get on the ball with? So this won't take effect immediately, but what uh, agencies have to start doing now, according to OPM, is start thinking about how they're going to put this continuous vetting process into place for these uh, new groups of employees. This means tracking who is going to be enrolled in the program, managing the requirements for how you get enrolled, managing alerts or letting employees know that, hey, you're going to start seeing this pretty soon. And that also includes in that communication, any communication that might have to be given to federal unions about about this as well. 
Wow, and they want to do this by the end of fiscal 2024. They are dreaming, folks, if you ask me. That's just my personal opinion. And this is taking place primarily why? So this is part of what is called the Trusted Workforce 2.0 initiative. This is something that began during the Trump administration and the Biden administration has continued for the last couple of years as well. The goal is to modernize and expand the vetting processes for federal employees. So taking things that exist, for example, national security positions and making that a little bit more broad to apply to other federal employees government-wide as well, not just national security agencies, but other agencies too. This new announcement from OPM and, and telling agencies to ramp up their preparations for launching this, this comes after a proposal earlier this year that OPM had where they were telling agencies to start planning on this as well. Well, this is something that's going to have to be diffuse throughout the agencies because you can't ask the secretary of VA to come up with a list of 366,000 employees, which ones of those are going to be subject to this. So it's going to have to get down, I would think, to the unit bureau office level of who people think should be under continuous vetting. And those people are going to need pretty clear guidance so that you have consistency across a big department. Right. There will likely be a good amount of lead time here. It could take at least a few months, if not longer, to figure out, you know, how is this process going to work for agencies? And I think that's why OPM is sharing this now. But, Tom, also notably, this comes after a pilot that was launched earlier this year for a couple of different agencies where they were starting to enroll at least a few employees who are in these new types of positions into continuous vetting. The pilot is still ongoing, but they're generally going to try to take some lessons learned from there as well to apply more broadly. So that might be a source of help for agencies who, who are going to be having to take this on. Now, will this all run through the NBIB, the National Background Investigation Bureau? Because that's really not quite fully baked itself yet. And the systems that they are trying to build to support continuous vetting for security clearance, it's really not there yet. And so will this load be put on that kind of still not quite stiffened set of foundational reads? It's hard to say at this point how that's all going to play out, but OPM is generally right now just directing agencies to start ramping up at least the preparation end or the first steps to make this happen by the end of the fiscal year. So we don't really know then yet whether any of exactly. is involved, but some kind of a process is going to have to take place. And what about the costs? So OPM does say that this could eventually actually save money for employees depending on um, you know, how much it costs to do these procedures versus the larger every five-year background checks that generally take place for these employees. That's something they laid out in their proposed regulations earlier this year, but they they do say that they think this can be a benefit to agencies who may face some burdens with the vetting process overall. All right, and so the end goal is to have this in place for some number of the two million-odd federal employees by the end of fiscal 2024. Correct. So that would be by September 30th, 2024, that uh, OPM is telling agencies to have the system in place. Also notably that employees who are in low risk category, it, it will eventually also apply to them. But OPM is still working through finalizing the regulations for that group of employees as well. Yes. But when you say people with public trust, I mean, that's procurement people, that's financial people in the accounting and finance function, that's grant-making people, as you mentioned, policy-making people. I'm trying to figure out who's not in a position of public trust when you're working for the federal government. No, that's a good point. This is covering a lot of people. It's uh, eventually the end goal is to look at all positions within the competitive service, the accepted service, the career senior executive service, and federal contractor employees. So there's a lot of groups that are involved in this process, and it will take some time to stand up. So we'll just kind of have to see how it plays out. 
Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across 
org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it? And building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so... That was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to 
very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going? Um, Because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because 
first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So, I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.